0: You're listening to the Relationship Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. Hey, welcome back to the show, everyone. Happy New Year 2021. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Mr. John Whalen for our first episode of 2021. Hey, I first met John when he was a sixth grade teacher back at East Middle School in Binghamton City School District. John came to Texas to visit me at Ed White Middle School and we automatically connected. He brought me up to the district, we started doing some training together, and since then I've seen John grow from a teacher to the restorative practices coordinator of the district and now in leadership, a principal of a campus. Hey, John and I sit down and discuss his journey and some of the highlights and obstacles he's encountered while implementing a relationship-centered learning approach. But before we get into today's episode, I'm going to invite you to head over to rclfirst.com and join our brand new RCL Facebook group. This is a brand new community that we have created to connect, inspire, ask questions, and just grow together as we continue to strive to put relationships at the center of all learning. I hope that you will come join us. Hey, thanks for tuning in today's episode. Let's get started. Welcome to the Relationship Center Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. Hey, I am blessed today, guys, to have Mr. John Whalen on the show. Welcome to the show, John.
1: Thanks, Kevin. This is uh, is something I've been uh, looking forward to.
0: Absolutely. So, hey, just like every episode, listeners, we always start off with the Flip 5 GTKY, where we just do five GTKY questions to get a little chance to know each other a little bit better. So, John, I'll ask you five questions, you Flip 5 back at me, and then we'll kind of jump into today's show. So, first right. question, John, is if you were not an educator,
1: what would you be? I wanted to be the starting catcher for the New York Mets. That didn't pan <laughs> out. Uh, if I wasn't an educator, I, I would probably, probably be working with computers in some form or fashion. Uh, It was something I was interested in back in college, you know, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And it was either computers or teaching. And I thought, well, you know, I like kids and, you know, I think I could do this. And lo and behold, here I am.
0: There you go. All right. Question number two. Now, you and I know each other pretty well, but so I know the answer to this, but so I'm going to assume your favorite city in Texas is Austin. Is that correct? A, okay, yeah. so I want you to tell what 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 is one thing that you love about Austin, Texas?
1: The energy, the energy. There, the first time I went there, uh, it was first time I was ever in Texas. It was back in 2013. I just felt this amazing energy in the city that I've never felt in any other place I've ever been. You know, especially. Coming from a small city in the Rust Belt, you know, in upstate New York, to go there and just see energy and see things building and see just innovation everywhere. But, the, the you know, people excited to be living there. It was just a neat, neat place, you know, great nightlife. You know, it was there in March, and I thought, this is like being in Florida, you know, 65, 70 degrees. We'd come from a, a foot or two of snow in New York to come out there. So there's a lot for me to list. But, but I think when I talk to people here, they know I love Austin. They asked me, well, what is it about Austin you love? And the first thing I always say is the energy. It's awesome. the most energetic city I've been in. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll stay with one
0: more question for the Texas theme. So uh, traveling across Texas, what has become one of your like favorite meals like you've experienced in Texas?
1: Oh, boy. I love – it's not necessarily a set meal, but it's just the Texas barbecue is, is unmatched. You know, I've been to Kansas City. You know, I, There's nothing like it here in the Northeast. There's a place up in, in Dallas area. It, begins with, it has the eights, something eight barbecue. I, I can't remember the name of it. But it was one of the neatest experiences and, and fantastic food. So I'd say just the overall like barbecue. I, I can't do the Mexican food. It just doesn't agree with me. But yeah, I, I'm going to go with the barbecue. Okay, good deal. Question number
0: four. I know you love music, John. So let's share with him. Who is your favorite artist of all times?
1: Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Or just pick one of them at least. Yeah, uh, I mean, right now I'm, I'm listening to a lot of Pearl Jam. I, I kind of go back and forth between Pearl Jam or Dave Matthews. I've been listening to a lot of the War on Drugs. They're a really neat band. Uh, but right now I'm listening to a lot of Pearl Jam and just going back into some of their like mid-years, mid, mid years, like the 2000s, and just listening to some of those albums and getting into them. Because I was I, I didn't listen to them much for about 10 years, so I'm, I'm kind of going back and making up some work. Gotcha. All right, last question, number five. So when you think about it, what is your,
0: you know, I know you kind of live where you kind of grew up. So what is one of your, when you think about your childhood, what's a memory that you're just like, man, like this is one of those memories that sums up my childhood
1: experiences or memories. I'll tell you what, when I think back to my childhood, there's so many, but I, I think back to you know, being in middle school and, you know, the bikes are in the front yards we lived in a very suburban neighborhood, uh, not busy roads to there, but there's 30, 40 kids running around this, these this two mile loop and what's inside of it and the the wiffle ball games we used to have in the summer and the home run derbies and just waking up every day without a care in the world and just playing ball you know reading the box scores every morning you know wanting to be you know whether it's Keith Hernandez or Keith you know Ken Griffey Jr. any of those guys uh, and then going out and playing wiffle ball all day and then coming home for dinner at night and you know and repeat the next day so I think back to being a kid in my neighborhood that's that's the first thing i thought of
0: that's awesome brother well oh absolutely so if you haven't figured out mr wayland is a huge mets fan along with a new york giants fan but also this is crazy the first time i got a chance to meet and meet your neighborhood and go to your house in conklin it was crazy john because the first thing i remember is is when you talk about you're like we don't lock our doors and i was like what holy cow, like that still exists. Like you live, like you said, in that two mile loop of this neighborhood, it is amazing. And it's not a throwback in time as far as like aesthetically, just throwback in, in just the way that people are raised and the way that people live. And so, man, I will tell you that when I look at it, that is one of the first things I felt like was, because I never grew up in that type of community. But I would tell you that was one thing that really impressed me, and and so I can easily see why you live there and you want to raise your kids here. So uh, thanks for asking, uh, answering those five questions. So you got five yeah. for me, buddy.
1: So I got five for you, and I and I thought about these. Kevin. Oh God, you know God. I, you know, your you know it's probably close to a brother is not my real brother. Yeah, uh, as I have, so I know an awful lot about you. But I had to think of some questions because I you know I thought let me ask some questions. I don't really necessarily know the answer to. Okay, so let's uh, let's start with this one. What was the first like pop? type concert you ever attended you know like going to like an arena or an amphitheater not like down at the end of the street you know watching the school Mm, band
0: no i'm with you so believe it or not i i didn't go to a whole lot of concerts and i don't think i've ever really gone to a pop one my first concert was kiss and so i was 12 years old i went to a kiss concert now you know my brothers being you know eight and a half to 10 years older than i was so they drug not didn't drug i loved kiss so they took me to a kiss concert so you know, I always tell people like that was like my first true real rock experience concert. I think it was in the old convention center in San Antonio or whatever. But that, yeah, to never go to, a, like you said, a small venue. Like I think I saw, and this sounds crazy, but I think I saw Alabama when they were first starting out, like at an amphitheater, somewhere at the base or something. But to go to an arena and, and hear rock and hear mm-hmm. and to see Kiss was flipping amazing at 12 years old. I remember well, that concert. really
1: knocked the socks off of mine. My first concert was at 12 too, but it was Vanilla Ice.
0: <laughs> so, um, oh man. I don't know. I would trade you sometimes. Cause I yeah, would tell you, man, he was, was an experience. Oh, sure.
1: absolutely. So now that, you know, like right now that we're recording this in mid December, you know, we're close to the holiday season. So my question to you is what is your number one favorite holiday snack? You know, if you could eat that snack and not gain a pound, what would oh, that God. be? So believe it or not,
0: my mom has passed, but it was, it, she would always make, and this was interesting because even when I got older, Every year, she didn't give me a Christmas present. And I was completely good with that. She would bake for me. And she would bake these graham cracker bars. Um, The best way to describe them, it's not a cookie. It's not a brownie. It's got chocolate chips in it graham crackers. And I don't know, it was one of those things that growing up, she made every year. But she only made them like maybe once, maybe twice a year. She'd make a big old pan of them. And me growing up, I don't drink a lot of milk. But those are the kind that I would just cut off a square and dunk in some milk. And oh my god, like that—that that just like you—you you got me satiated just thinking about him. But yeah, man, those graham cracker bars. So every year she would show up at my house, even for you know as she got older, and she would always bring a big Ziploc bag, and she would always remind everybody. Whoever was in the house, remember, these are Kevin's, you know, like, like, don't. T- so and I, were they
1: warm when you got them?
0: No, they weren't. They weren't warm. No, she, they weren't warm. You know, I'm sure she's mm-hmm. made them the day before, whatever, but they were like a brownie and I like brownies, but they were as mm-hmm. brownie like, but it was interesting. They were just graham crackers. And, and what's crazy is, is so yeah, graham crackers, chocolate chips, but just kind of a moist cake brownie kind of thing. So yeah, man, that, that would be my holiday and I miss them because she's no longer here. So Yeah. And what's crazy is, I don't know why, and I say this because I'm not trying to be like insensitive, but like, even when she was in hospice and she was, you know, going through kidney failure, I was like, I should have been like, where are the recipes, mom? Give me the recipes, pass them on to me. But I didn't, I definitely didn't get that recipe for the grand bars. Cause if not, I'd be making those suckers and I've Googled them. I've tried to find them. And I, you know, it's just like anyone else who grows up. She probably didn't, she probably made them from scratch of some stuff and didn't write it down but I
1: don't know, but they're great. Great question. Sounds amazing. All right. So, uh, I don't know the answer to this next one. What was the first car you ever owned? Like 19th. Oh, 1976
0: Capri, I guess a Capri two. It was bright. I can't even say banana, like a canary yellow. I worked all summer with my mom. My mom was a food stamp case worker and she hired me as a temp worker to file all summer. I made 900 bucks. And I spent 900 bucks cash. One of my good friends from high school, his neighbor was selling it. And I was like, dude, I want that car. 1976 Capri 2. And what I remembered, it had an alarm system in it. So it had like a keypad, like a one, two, three, you know, numbers. And back then people were like, oh my God, he has this number system in his car. It looks so, so modern, you know, for a 1976 car to have it. But no, I still remember that car. Love that car.
1: Was it like a boat? Like, like no,
0: no, know? no, no. So Capri, no, kind of like... Small sedan, I mean, or small, it was kind of like a, I'm trying to remember, four, it was four doors, but not, no, not, nothing big. Almost like the size of a Mustang, four-door Mustang, you know, something like that.
1: Yeah, not, nothing All big. Right, so I'm going to my next GTKY question, and this is one of my favorites I use when I ask them to groups of people, whether it's just in a, you know, a quick question to the class or in a circle is, if you could snap your fingers twice and up anywhere where in the world right now, This moment, where would you want to end up? You know, based on you and I, go back to
0: Eleuthera, but I think I'm going to go with Greece. This, I I really want to go to Greece. I I just, I I don't know, blue waters, white, you know, white rocks, and stuff like that. Every time I see a picture, man, I'm like, I want to go to Greece. So if I could do it right now, I want
1: to go to Greece. Let's go. Love it. All right. Last one if you could take any job in the world, but only for one month, different than the job you have now, Mm -hmm. what job would that be?
0: Oh, I don't even have to hesitate. I've always wanted to open a youth hunting ranch is what I really wanted to do. That was, I had a hat made, you know, like you can get your own hats embroidered, not like talking tons of them, but like one. And I had, a, had it called Young Bucks and Does. I was going to uh, open a youth hunting ranch where we teach hunting safety, outdoors etiquette, you know, just all that kind of stuff. Put me an outdoor space where I could guide young people through the outdoors uh, in, in a
1: heartbeat. You'd be amazing at that.
0: Yeah, I mean I didn't know that about
1: you.
0: Yeah, no, I I it's so funny as I bought I I got I was at the San Antonio Rudio and they had this embroidery thing where they do it on the spot and you you know come back and pick it up in Mm -hmm. an hour. So I picked the graphic back then and I was in my 20s and it was like young bucks and does. That's what I'm gonna call it. Yeah, I had a name, I envisioned it and everything. Yeah, and then reality kicked in and it just kind of got sidetracked. Oh no, 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 because I would tell you, like, that's my future gig from relationship centered learning is is one day is, this, is just put a big ranch together and you know maybe make it the rcl ranch or something but but no Good to bring idea. youth to have kids out there and community and teaching the outdoors and just like yeah man that to me that's the best of both worlds
1: love it love it i could sit here and do gtky oh
0: absolutely Absolutely. Well, hey, listeners, that is the GTKY part of the episode. So, just like us, if you want to know more about GTKY questions or about our weekly circles, head over to rclfirst.com. Click on the link for the GTKY questions, or hey, click on the link to join the circles. We do circles Monday, Thursdays, and Saturday with Denise Holiday, Circle Mama, our co founder. So, if you're looking for opportunities to connect with us further, just head over to rclfirst.com. All right, with that out of the way, John, let's get started. So as people haven't figured out, you and I have been friends for quite a few years now. I still remember, John, when I first got your email. And I know you and I have talked about this in many Mm -hmm. different settings, but I want to just kind of quickly, you know, paint a picture on how our our two lives intersected. So you're a teacher, a math teacher at East Middle School in Binghamton. You've been there for a while. You can fill in the gaps. You get passionate about some stuff. And then I get a random email from this teacher from Binghamton which I you know not that I don't know all the cities had never heard of and you're like hey I want to come visit you on your campus and see what you're doing and so uh, just take the listeners through where you were at as an educator in your mindset and and what took you as a deep dive into this work.
1: Yeah so uh, like you said I worked at East Middle School in Binghamton New York did a couple years of second grade and realized that as much as I loved the kids and loved the building I was in I didn't necessarily love the second grade curriculum so I, I, I took a, a leap of faith and I started teaching sixth grade math at East Middle School in 2004. And East Middle School uh, was the type of school that taught me how to be a teacher very quickly. I made lots of mistakes in the first half of my time there. But as I as I went along and, and learned from my mistakes, I learned that the key thing was I had to find a way to connect with the students I worked with. So I, I learned to become, or actually, I don't want to say learn to become, I, I, I feel like I became a very good teacher at East Middle School. But... Around 2012, 2013, things really started to shift there. And, and like our discipline referrals were through the roof. There were fights, it seemed like, you know, on a weekly or, you know, every two-week basis were, you know, suspensions left and right coming from those. And I really felt, too, that there was a lot of the morale was sinking, you know, amongst the, the teachers in the building. And I wasn't experiencing that in, in my classroom. I you mean, know, I closed the door and I loved where I was at. I didn't I wouldn't want to teach anywhere else, but you know, when you went out in the hallways, you saw a totally different story. And you know, when I talked to my peers, who were all good teachers, I felt you know they a lot of them had you know felt you know frustrated, maybe, or you know just didn't know quite what to do. Is you know our our job was becoming more and more challenging. So I knew one thing: I knew that sending kids home on suspension wasn't working. Uh, you know, it seemed like to be the same kids going on home on suspension. They'd come back five days later, and you know like nothing had happened. They're either indifferent to this. They either felt indifferent to the suspension or there was some anger towards, you know, the person that may have caused the suspension or, or you know, had written the referral that led to it. 2013, I'll never forget it. The superintendent in our district showed up at, at my front door. Our principal that, we, that was in the building for many years had retired and the superintendent shows up in the, at, at my door. And I usually, if the superintendent shows up at your door and asks to speak with you, it's not a good thing. Uh, you know, unannounced at least, so I went out a little nervous, you know, I had that walk like I got caught by my parents doing something, and I kept thinking, you know what did I do? And she'd asked me to to serve on a committee that the district was putting together to look at you know uh, some of our discipline issues, but also to look at you know some disparities in discipline when it comes to race, when it comes to looking at students in general education versus special education. And I said, "Well, that sounds really interesting, and she said, "Well, you get to be out of the classroom two days." a month as well to go to these meetings. And I'm like, I'm in, you know, sign me up. That's where I went. And I started to really learn about disproportionality within discipline. And it wasn't an issue just in Binghamton. It was a national issue. And when I first started doing the math, because I was a math teacher and looking at, you know, if if, let's say 20% of your students were were African-American students in so many different schools, you could almost take that number and double it. And that's what you were seeing, whether it was East coast, West coast, you know, in the, in the South, it was all over the country, and it blew my mind. And uh, as I served on this, I, I right away, like a light flickered. And I just became, I just, I don't know what the word is, but I became very fascinated in wanting to learn more about this, but also learning about what are some, like, what could we be doing to fix this problem? And that's what that committee was doing. So uh, I'm a member of the committee had mentioned and asked me if i had ever heard of restorative justice. Uh, I saw a news story on it a few weeks later. It, it gauged my interest. So I just started researching it. I was really just looking for any ideas to, to promote to the building that I loved working in is, you know, as a you know, as a teacher saying, hey, let's try this, let's try that. And when I read the the study on Ed White Middle School in, in San Antonio, that was the first thing I found that really spoke to me. Uh, you know, I found a lot of great theory out there. I, thought, I found a lot of great community-based restorative justice ideas and thoughts, but I didn't see anything that necessarily spoke to a, a school setting in a way that I felt would gain traction right away. And so, uh, as I read that research article, or that research study I'm, uh, I think that's what it was, I read through it and I went to the superintendent the next day and I just and in a really quick comment said to her, "You know, in a perfect world, I'd love to visit this school and and she I'll never forget she looked at me and said, "Why don't you go? Why don't you go visit uh, So my good friend Keith Bernstein, who was my who was a co-teacher with me for all fifteen years that I that I taught at East, he um, him and I came out, and before I came out, I was looking for people to contact, and I called the middle school, and they said, you know, you need to speak to Mr. Curtis, but he's on a field trip today, and uh, I remember calling you and and, and setting it up, you're like, yeah, sure, come on in, you know, it's, uh, you're coming from New York, yeah, you were shocked, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, within a few weeks, we we flew out and uh, went to Ed White, and that's where I met, met you, and, and got the opportunity to walk the Ed White campus and had the opportunity to do some circles and just learn a whole lot of just not even learn, but just to see some different ideas in a different philosophy, you know, starting to, to bloom. Absolutely.
0: So, you know, John and I connected with him coming to the campus, spending a little bit of time. And then, you know, I remember when you told me, you were like, Hey, you're not going to be doing this for very long. I, I, you know, I see you kind of doing this, what I'm doing now. And it was so interesting because, you know, we kind of talked about that. So if we fast forward, Yeah. I leave public education. I leave Ed White. Now all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm training and coaching and somehow you finagle me into Binghamton
1: school district. When they asked me back, Kevin, they, or when they, when I came back, they said, you know, what do you think for training? I said, I know there's really one, one thing, you know, like that, you know, and I'd I'd visited and seen some other things and, you know, it was interesting to been to some conferences and workshops, but I said, I think we want to bring this guy, Kevin in just, I go, he speaks middle school language. And I, and I do remember sitting in your office and saying, you I, I was on to you, basically. I said, <laughs> you have like a passion for this, and and you understand it. And, and what I loved about you in that moment there, that day, and I remember talking to Keith about it on the way back after we spent two days at Ed White, and yep. then we went to, to UT the next day to talk about it. I remember saying, you were so transparent, you know, and just saying, hey, I'm not saying we're doing this perfectly. I'm not saying that this is a silver bullet or a magic wand, but... The teachers that are investing time and in, in in experimenting with some of these structures like the classroom circles or like you know, you guys called it respect agreement or a treatment mm-hmm. agreement. You said, you know, I'm really seeing just a genuine a difference in those areas versus teachers that may not be investing their time in, you know, in some of these uh relationship building or or social emotional learning building activities, you know, whatever you, you'd want to call them. So yeah, I I I valued that and uh and yeah, so I, you know, and I talked. superintendent into to bringing you up and, and that was that
0: yeah so you know i tell as our listeners go through the journey was so john got me to come into the district we really started on your campus primarily just sixth grade at this time our philosophy of limitation really hasn't changed even you know all these years later it was really like start small aim small miss you know aim small miss small and so we really started in sixth grade and so you know the first year Remind me, John, God, it's been so long. Were you still in the classroom that first year? Yeah, you you were still Um, teaching, but yet still trying to lead this restorative initiative of relationship building through community building circles and holding kids accountable through these restorative conversations and, and, and group conferences and those types of things. So if you go back to that first year, community building circles, so let's start on the proactive side real quick. What were some of the challenges? So I want our listeners to know, what were some of the challenges that you saw bringing this kind of initiative as a teacher, bringing it to other teachers. What were some of your ahas and takeaways from that first
1: year of implementation? I think one of the biggest challenges was just an understanding of what this is or what this was. And there wasn't a, a national definition on it. I mean, I searched high and low and really only found one school where I felt like it was like a really neat idea. Halfway across the country, you know, in Texas, doing some neat things. So I think one of the biggest challenges is explaining what restorative justice, because that's what people were calling it, was, or restorative discipline, you know, which I know you guys had been called with the group you worked with while you were at White in San Antonio. I also felt one of the big challenges is that people thought that this was just circles that. You know when you're doing restorative justice it's about circles and and i even thought that at first you know mm-hmm. just from everything i'd read I, I really didn't read a whole lot of different other than you do these circles and so uh, a misconception i think even as people begin to learn about it a misconception that a number of, of teachers had was that this is like the circle program and that we're every time there's an issue or a major issue even we're going to stop and we're going to circle up mm-hmm. and, and and we're going to solve it and the, the 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 magic of the circle is going to solve that issue in that you in that space and time, which was often dictated by, you know, a clock or a bell schedule. Right. And so there was, you know, a, that was a big challenge to, a big challenge was to shift the, the the mindset or the thought of circle being something that's only done when something was wrong. Or right. Right. A violation of a relationship or a, a, you know a fight had happened that was the only thought that I think many people had that's when we use this and and again i I'll own that too when I first learned about this mm-hmm. I thought this is uh this is going to fix everything, but as I began to experiment and I was playing a little bit with with relationship building circles around the time I came out because I got to do a few at Ed white you know mm-hmm. that were very primitive you know as I look back now uh, based on what I learned but when we started doing those relationship building circles, I started learning so much more about the students in my class. The, the first group of kids I did it with, it was a very small class of kids I had. It was only nine kids, never had a class that small, but it was a very challenging class. And I invested uh, and I really didn't know what I was doing. You know, this is before I met you. I, I bought a book at a, at a little mini conference. And just like, you know, a lot of times I pick up the book and I think, all right, I'm going to become an expert in this overnight. And uh, it was it was a little bumpy, but I did get to learn a lot about the kids. They learned a lot about each other. And I started to see the value in the relationship building side. So when you ask me what the biggest challenge was, I think the the initial big challenge was seeing this restorative justice idea, or whatever you want to call it. Right. I think that's still a, a struggle in this in this realm of restorative is seeing it not as a thing you do, but as a as a process of building. And really, what I've learned is that the when you look at restorative as a whole, it's the proactive part is such the important, it's the most important part. It's building that foundation so that when those things do happen, you have an, you have a community that's willing to buy into each other because they've learned so much about each other. They learn to respect each other that you can, you can oftentimes work together as a community or a classroom, whatever you want to call that. Right. It, to resolve many of those problems that, that come up. And so, and I, and I experienced that myself and I, I know a number of my peers did as well.
0: Yeah, I always had that phrase. And I think I've said, you've heard me say this before. It's not something you do. It's something you go through, right? It literally, that's why people, you know, ask me, so where did I change? I said, it's a slow process. You know, it's a really slow transformation that you really don't, you know, it comes in a couple like, wow, great moments when kids share something vulnerable or a lesson goes a certain way or something has an outlook. Those are all molding and shaping you. But you're right. I think on education, we're so used to, let's just use the word initiative. An initiative comes at us no matter what the title is. But then the hard part, John, is is you put a title with the word restorative and we'll leave the, the ending, whatever, justice, discipline, practices, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. But it comes at your school with this context. And that's why I say vocabulary is so key because they bring this initiative restorative. And then for them, they see it as, okay, what's this next box we're coming that we're going to have to check and do? So what I'm hearing you say, I want to clarify, is one of the challenges was taking this and keeping it from just being isolated as a reactive tool when there was conflict or confrontation. Would you agree? Perfect. Yep. Okay. So then, so we found, you you and I together, supporting the, the sixth grade, found that Getting it to be more proactive was really hard at the beginning because one, we only had circles in, and let's just own it. And then we're going to talk about the book and circles, but circles to me, and you, you've you kind of agreed, we've gotten on the same philosophy. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of space. There's a lot that goes into them. And back then we were definitely still unpacking with a lot of openings, closing centerpieces, a lot of things that you cover in the book. But it was a, it's almost like what I call the elephant of restorative. It, it just takes up a lot of that space. So when you look at it, John, think about it this though, for because this I want I want to share this with our listeners because this was really, really key. Because inadvertently you replicated and emulated what I did at Ed White. And we didn't see this coming, but we we ended up like it it hit us in the face. You were on the fourth floor, you're in sixth grade, all, pretty much everybody's on the fourth floor. And what I called it, I started calling it restorative island because. You remember when I joked about it because it seems like restorative was stuck on the fourth floor. It didn't go down to to the office and they left you up there to do this. And so not throwing casting stones, they left you guys to like give you an off period as a teacher in between you and Keith. And however, you kind of mixed each other's schedules around. And you created that, what would he call it, the restorative room or the you know what in room four four something, wasn't it? Room four four,
1: it was four oh three, yeah.
0: Four oh three or whatever it is. So the reason I tell our listeners this is because unfortunately, a lot of schools, including myself and and John fell, we fall into this, let's just call it a restorative trap, Mm -hmm. where we're like, okay if there's conflict or confrontation, let's do this, you know, let's do this restorative conversation circle, whatever it's going to be. We'll do it in a separate space away from the classroom. And we'll be the ones that facilitate that. And we'll take that off your hands. Well, that's what I was doing at Dead White. So when you came to see me, not that you were emulating me, but that's what we both fell into that pattern, right? So, I know you're a numbers guy, but it wasn't it crazy when we started tracking the number of students that we're starting to see? Wasn't it like I don't know, 600? Was it more? Or I know 900?
1: one. If I, I want to say, and I could look this up, but i do oh. not my head. I think, I think it, we saw the first year, and, and again, we're talking 180 days of school, something like 900 instances of kids coming to that room right now give me the demographics of how many students were roughly at east so okay. with the group of that we were working in sixth grade it was a little bit over 200 okay so uh, a little over 200 kids in this in this group in this pilot group 200 students So, i mean yeah you were averaging each kid averaged three and a half visits a year <laughs> but some yeah. kids average three and a half visits a week right and so
0: that that's why i say yeah we, we say it's an average but we know we, we you know. I even coming every periodic would see the same kids, you know, and so as far as modeling and those types of things. So I look back, when you look back on how restorative sometimes can be isolated into how to respond and react to, you know, conflicts and confrontations, what are some of the things that you can share with our listeners that you learned as you were helping resolve some of these conflicts and confrontations, either student to student, teacher it didn't matter. But what are some takeaways from from the responsive part of the of the restorative tools that
1: you can give our listeners? So, your takeaways. I think one thing that I stumbled upon, and I think I did this naturally. I think many teachers do, but I think it wasn't until we, you know, started working together more and eventually working with districts and schools, you know, even that first year, was that idea of differentiation. Each kid that walked in that office had a different story, you know, had a different background, different set of understandings of, of how things work. And each kid we had to learn didn't have a, like a, a preset, you know, set of boxes to check on, on how to resolve this issue. And so those some of those kids that came two, three times a week, it was important that they did because they needed that, that attention and that time to, to work through whatever it is that they were going through. So yeah, you know, differentiation, I learned it was key, but to think of it in that way too, because we never thought about conflict confrontation, discipline is something that we use differentiation for, right? Because, uh, you know, we're used to, if A happens, then we got to do B, we'll admit so many code of conducts were built that way, that, you know, you just bring that book off the shelf and say, well, he did this, here's what you got to do, you know, right. prescribed action. So, uh, you know, learning that we needed to differentiate, but the challenge with that was, you know, sometimes kids would come in, and we'd, we'd build a specific route. Just like you would if, you know, if a kid couldn't memorize their multiplication facts, you're going to use a different strategy to help them teach that. Well, if we had to go a different route with a kid to work, to have him understand, you know, the impact of his actions or to lead that student down a path of accountability. And that student makes that same mistake a day later, a week later, even half a year later, you you get to raise eyebrows and they say, well, did that restorative really didn't work? So that was one of the big challenges. and I don't blame anybody for that. I think a lot of it goes based on how we were all raised, 70s, 80s, 90s, which is you know even 2000s now with some of our young teachers. But you know, back when I went to school, it was no nonsense. It was zero tolerance. It was zero, zero tolerance discipline policies. And I'm a firm believer that most teachers, myself included, oftentimes, Will think back to like what worked well for me when I was a student, and, mm-hmm. and those are things that you do in your practice as a teacher. And some of your practice as a teacher is dealing with discipline. So I, yeah. I think I think people sometimes even subconsciously fall into like, well, we I, this is the way we always did it and this is this is you know what must work and and so you know, I, you know it's interesting and I don't you catch know, up it's interesting because
0: uh, you know I never really asked you this question but it's crazy how the role you ended up leading the cam- leading the campus and then eventually leading the district you know leaving the classroom and becoming the restorative coordinator for for Binghamton City Schools it's crazy because we both saw the same similarities that for whatever reason do you bring this initiative of restorative to campuses and districts and somehow as it, as it funnels down to the teachers, they somehow, and in, in, I'm going to use interpret, right? Inference that this, if you use this tool or these tools, that when you address harm or conflict through restorative methodology, that in their mind, which nobody has ever said this in any of the trainings, but in their mind, there's that's supposed to make that behavior like end it, go away, and it's never supposed to come back. And I always question myself because That's why we've always been really keen on telling you what restorative practices is not because I think as much as we want a healthy definition of things, I think I'm great to give you a definition. And then let me tell you what it's not, because if I don't, then you're going to either read or listen or have a different experience. And I have to make it very clear that as you mentioned earlier, that's our phrase, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a magic wand. It's not going to fix all the kids. And so if you can put those parameters around it, then it kind of, at least when a kid repeats a behavior, whether it's next week, next month, or next year, at least we can say, Did I, didn't I tell you that we're going to do this again? Like, why
1: would we expect them to not do this right. again? I, I think human nature, though, when you get a problem that's so challenging, in, you know, teachers are very competent people, and you get a, you get a, a behavior that, that's so challenging or, or uh, a class that's so challenging, you've thrown the kitchen sink at it. You've thrown every strategy that you were taught or that you can reflect back on those great teachers you had that they did that your peers might be suggesting to you. And then you bring in a a training to the school, like here's this idea of restorative. I think, and I'm not saying a teacher, I'm saying teachers as a whole, I was guilty of this for many different things in education. When When an idea comes up, you're like, oh, this makes great sense it's got to work or, Oh, here's a fix to my problem. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, that idea. And, and, I'm, you know, the listeners don't know this, but I know you know we've had so many conversations. I love one of your, your quotes that you use often is, you know, that expectation leads to
0: this expectation leads to disappointment.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I will say though, that, that, you know, I, when it came to, discipline issues, when it came to, you know, a lot of things, even some of the smaller issues that would get documented as a referral that, you know, was, uh, you know, discretionary, you know, some mm-hmm. teachers were writing referrals for these things, some weren't. I found that the majority of those situations, though, the opportunity to use restorative was much more effective than a traditional uh, approach well to, 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 you know, dealing with that issue. Now, the, the challenge, we want to talk about another challenge, was time. You know, for a certain issue, I remember a group of girls that we were working with, it, one day they were in there for four or five hours. But my explanation, and there were some, you know, and it was a very honest discussion. I always felt that way with our sixth grade teams. You know, when we, when we sat and talked about new ideas is, well, you know, they missed four hours of class that day. And in my counter, and it wasn't maybe that situation, but always when it comes to a, a behavior that isn't changing and might be escalating, especially over time, is I'd rather invest three or four hours. To work towards a genuine solution where this, where the students and the children are involved in it. Right. They feel a sense of ownership to it. I'd rather invest that three, four hours than to try to invest the next three, four months of reactionary strategies that we already had known weren't working. So I, I think it, you know, the challenges are just I think the box that education's become. Sure. You know, especially in the middle and high school level where you have, you know, a, a boxed in schedule in many schools where, you know, you have 40 minute classes and, right. and, you know, you don't have that fertile ground to spend four hours a day with the same group of kids. Because, you know, in your primary buildings, you know, and we've learned this working with so many different schools, they get to know their 20 kids so well that when a, a problem happens on their home turf, which is their classroom, mm-hmm. it can be handled most times in there absolutely uh, and it's hard to do when you're only with a group of kids for 40 minutes a day
0: yeah and that was a challenge when i started working with you because again your, your classes i'm not saying are so short but they are they are definitely marginalized compared to some of the time you get to spend with others so mm-hmm. if we only spend a few more minutes in the responsive, because then i want to go to the proactive yeah. side so it's interesting because you and i have started noticing patterns and again me being a brand new consultant should have foreseen some of this but we started noticing that if you gave them a room 403 and you gave them a teacher's as an out to not only go out of my class because it's a difficult situation or I have to deal with you and then Mr. Whalen or Mr. Bernstein or whoever is gonna go deal with you, isn't it interesting how you and I started noticing the same pattern because that what was happening at me to Ed White, I didn't have a room, but it was Mr. Curtis's office, right? So either go to Mr. Curtis's office for you, or go to room 403. And we started noticing that if you leave an opportunity for educators to have a place for them to send difficult behaviors. I mean, we talked about it. Like I think I gave you the analogy, like a water in a boat, right? Like it, it's going to take on water, right? There's going to be a hole. If you leave a crease, there's going to, they're going to find a way to get that out. So, you know, as you reflect back and we think about how many incidents we were seeing and, but yet how the teachers were using that, right. As a, as, and let's just say not all of them, but then we did see some patterns where there was, you know, an escape of dealing with it at at the time or it's somebody else's problem and those types of things. And I think that's what happens guilty sometimes as we navigate through the restorative waters. It's really difficult, as you mentioned, with time, scheduling, all those other pieces to truly bring the teacher in as part of the conversation. Because when we talk about the best bang for the buck, you know, as well as I do, you've become so not only proficient, John, you're excellent at it, we can handle a conflict or confrontation, but maybe it has that teacher or that other adult, if they're not part of that process, then ultimately we're kind of putting a restorative Band-Aid on it and then we put it back in that scenario and then it it may potentially blow back up. And then the reason I say this is is because then the teacher the band aid gets blown off, and then they, to a certain extent, blame us or blame this restorative methodology for failing. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think back and to you know the, to some of our experimentation with that idea of you know working with that room and having teachers send kids out, and, and a lot of it was learning how to navigate. You talk like we didn't know what we were doing. Like we were taken an idea, but we learned that first year that this idea had some great benefits, but also created some great challenges. I think the the key is, and, and again, time is a challenge with this. The key is, is, and, and it's something that we we worked on trying to to streamline better the process. The following years is if if a student, if we were gonna, you know, a student was willing to work restoratively through a, a confrontation or a conflict with another student or another teacher, especially teachers. The key was to have the teachers be part of the process. The problem with that, or the challenge with that, is that again. So many of us aren't used to that. Uh, I had a number of times, even in my role now as a principal where I would go up to a teacher and I always use what you taught me, uh, you know, for this situation, what do you need right now? And to feel like that we're on a path towards solving it. And a lot of teachers really struggle with that. And I understand, I, I get it because that's not their, you know, they don't think like that's their job to, you know, hand out discipline or to make a consequence of, you know, for a student. But, you know, the, the key is, is, and I saw, I see this happen so often when, Teachers are willing, and it's not a magic bullet, and that's you know, or the magic wand is what I'm thinking. The beauty of this is when you can bring a student and a teacher together after you've pre-conferenced with them and learned, you know, kind of some of the workings behind what caused the conflict to happen. And you get them to agree to come in and you have a facilitator who's trusted by both people to facilitate that conversation. I saw some of the most amazing things when teachers were willing to come in and just say, okay, I'm willing to listen. Now, were there agreements made sometimes in a restorative conference? That a student may have broken, of course. I mean, there were, but I will tell you, I've seen some that were magical. I mean, just—I was going to
0: say, John. You know what? I I think our listeners would love a story. So, Mm -hmm. I don't care which story you tell. I know you've got so many. So, as I'm talking, I'm going to let you go through that ADD Rolodex of yours—a
1: teacher-student one.
0: It doesn't matter. I mean, just give. I want to. I want the listeners to kind of. Yeah, I I know.
1: I know. It's so hard for me, but I I got one of of a teacher that I think struggled with the philosophy. You know, of of differentiation of you know working you know with instead of to, You know, you know as an administrator, you want to work with the parties when when appropriate. I mean, sometimes it's not appropriate to bring a victim and an offender together. Sure. In and and I, in those words are kind of harsh for education because I, 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 you know, we've talked about that in our trainings before. But I think this teacher struggled a little bit, and it wasn't out of ill will or anything. I just think that you know it might have been in their mindset, their experience, you know, growing up that you know you do things. You know, very much in a line. If A happens, B is what you do. And, and this teacher struggled with this student all year. And what I really respected and, and really didn't have any interest, I don't think, in, in really delving much into the restorative side of, of dealing with some of these things. And so I think out of frustration towards the end of the year, the teacher said, all right, I'm willing to have this, this conference thing. And I, and I have so much respect for that teacher to be able to step out of their comfort zone and try something different. And we had a conference with, with this student and the teacher, and I didn't know what to expect. I, I, you know, sometimes you're like, yeah, this might be a tough one. This might take a long time. Within about 15 minutes, both got to talk about, you know, what had happened. There was an initial, and I won't get into it, but the, the teacher was disrespected you know, mm-hmm. pretty poorly by the student in front of the class. And was, you know, it was very inappropriate. And, you know, and it was throughout the year, there were a number of instances, you know, just, just blatant disrespect. This was a really kind, pert teacher, you know, somebody that I, you know, wouldn't go out of his way to, to you, know, you know, go bring Camp Whalen out like I might have done a few times in my career. Yes, sir. So, so uh, we brought these, these two in and, and they talked about what had happened. But the key was, is what did they need from each other? And here's where I, I saw it happen in front of me. I think all that student needed was for an opportunity to be heard. And what his is, and I'll, I, I can't even remember what he needed at the moment, but when it came down to how do we move forward, like the future, like, okay, we, we've uh, listened to what each other needs. We listened to how we were been affected by each other. And then here's how we're going to fix it. And, and we talked about, you know, what do we need from each other? And we willing to meet each other's needs. And they both did. And they said, you know, what can we do in the future? And this teacher was working on a big school project for like a performance, and um, you know was was doing some of the work on it. And he's you know he'd mentioned that, and the student said, "Well, how about I come help you?" And you know with that, and, and went and helped him. And I mean, what better way to build you know begin either repairing or building a relationship than than spending that time together? But I, you know, I saw a number of times these these things happen where. Sometimes a student just needs to be heard. And, you know, and again, that idea of what a student brings into school, each student brings their own toolbox of understandings of, of their own relationships and lives. And we as teachers can't read their minds. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know what that bag is that they bring in each day. Right. And in this process of bringing people together and giving everybody a voice, that mm-hmm. voice word's key, I think brings us back to that human level which I think education should be so rooted
0: in. Absolutely. And I know you, were able to, you weren't able to come to the last conference, but if you remember that shirt, we always say value, seen, and heard, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, for us, I think what that, that saying really came from the restorative process, because as you said, it's, it, whether it's the teacher or the student, both parties want to feel valued, mm-hmm. seen, and heard. And, and, what, and I think if people ask me what restorative has brought to me as an educator and as a human being, is that brought it to the forefront. Like I think education buries that crap and, and you lose it in, in the content and and, this, and, and yep. testing and all the other responsibilities. Box. And so what happens is, if we could walk in every day with a mindset of saying, okay, how am I gonna make my students, whether it's virtual or in person, how are we gonna make them holistically as a whole group feel value, seen, and heard? And for those individuals who are struggling, how to make them value, seen, and heard?